Hey, hi, hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Coding Fix. If you're brand new to the show, hey, it's fantastic to have you here with us. And if you're a returning listener, it's great to see you again. Our podcast journey has taken us in a bunch of directions over the past few months. And while most of our talks have been focused on things that new devs should know when getting into the world of code, we've also had a few little tangents here and there about things which are kind of important in the news of the world at the time, things like QA and blockchain. Today, we are shifting our focus back to some pieces of knowledge that will be important to our ongoing coding journey. The subject we'll be talking about today is something we've already kind of alluded to in previous episodes, but we're going to be exploring it in a bit more depth. Also, while we will be going somewhat in depth with it, this is meant to be an overview, so we won't be diving ultra deep, because honestly, we could spend a whole episode on each of the things that we're covering, especially their quirks, and the deeper ways they're actually used in any given programming language. But today is an overview, so that way we can all at least be on the same page. Though, if there's any part which particularly intrigues you, please send me an email at any time to coding at fix.space, fyx.space. We can totally and definitely fast track some of those subjects for future episodes. Anyways, we are here to talk about primitives and data structures. And as I alluded to early, these are basically going to be applicable in any coding language you use ever. <laughs> uh, they might get different names and the way you define or use them might change a little bit between languages, but in the end, the core of what you're using is going to be pretty much identical whether you're doing it in JavaScript or Python or Rust or Go or C++ or PHP or Ruby or whatever. They're fundamental concepts, and once you're comfortable with them, then you should have a relatively easy time connecting the dots if or when you do pick up a new language. You can kind of think of it this way. It's comparable to if we were traveling in a country we've never been to before with no cell phone or anything like that, just us as a person. And the people there speak a language we don't know, and it's so far removed from our own we can't even get cues. If we have pictures available to us, then we would be able to point to them and be able to kind of convey what we intend to say because that knowledge is shared across both languages. Even if we don't use the same words to describe them, we can still understand the concepts and, you know, kind of make progress with our communication. If I point to the picture of a cat while making meowing sounds, we'll probably both understand that we're talking about a cat. Or if I point to a taco and then just start going chomp, 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 we'll probably understand, oh, tacos, you want a taco? Great, let's find tacos. Uh, so yeah, establishing that fundamental understanding of what a cat is, the noises it makes, the relative size, and everything like that, that's kind of what we're doing right now with our topic. But instead of describing fuzzy, cute companions, we're instead describing the words, numbers, and concepts that we use to communicate with our computer. Beyond that, when we start really diving into data structures, it's also how we start to convey fairly complex information without needing to take up too much space. So, without further ado, but probably still with bad metaphors and jokes, let's jump into our primitives. One of the first things we do whenever we start in any language is to have our first program say hello world to us. 
It's kind of our way of making sure that the language is working correctly and that our computer is interacting properly with it. So, you know, hello world ends up being our way of making sure that everything is behaving as we expect. Also, it's kind of cute. You know, your computer's saying hello world to you. That's awesome. Anyways, this usually involves a print statement, printing our words out to a console. Uh, depending on your language, this can be console log or console write line or print ln or, you know, whatever flavor your language likes to use. Uh, a very common convention used to get our code to actually say hello world uh, involves us surrounding those words within quotation marks. So when we have quotation marks around words or letters or entire novels or whatever, that means that we are telling our code that the data we're working with is our first primitive, which is a string. Strings are used to represent, well, like I said, words or sentences or paragraphs or books or just whatever arbitrary words and symbols that you want to put in there. If you want to capture someone's first name, that'll be a string. If you want to have a comment that's being posted to a message board, that will be stored as a string. Uh, you know, it's just our chosen way to store that kind of data, which is made up of alphanumeric characters as well as symbols. Symbols being things like commas, periods, exclamation points, question marks, emojis, and, you know, things like that. Also, I used a couple of very specific words there. I said that it is made up of alphanumeric characters and symbols. These are both ways we can actually break down our string into more simple terms. For example, you can consider a string to be made up of multiple characters. So the word cat is made up of the characters C, A, and T, which is how our computers actually figure out what the full string is. They stick those together. If you remember with our binary bits and bytes episode, each one of those characters is a value in a stream of bytes. And our computer interprets these characters by looking up the value of whatever value is assigned to it, usually something like Unicode. And that's ultimately how we get the characters and symbols and numbers and whatever to re represent our words, numbers, and so forth within our string. Now, uh, for the senior devs among us, you might recognize that while we do have the term character, it is a bit overloaded. Uh, we also do have things like code points and code units and graphemes and glyphs and far more, but for the sake of simplicity and comprehension, we're just going to keep our context limited to strings, characters, and symbols. Anyways, strings are a fundamental part of any part of code that you'll be writing in the modern era, especially if you do anything on the web. Because as soon as you have a form that requires something like an email or a location or, you know, anything of that nature, then you will constantly be working with strings. Same if you are working in backend APIs too, though, because often you'll be defining endpoints for things like your database in environment variables, and those all come in as strings. So if you do any form of coding, strings will become very, very familiar to you very quickly. However, Another type of data that you'll be working with extremely frequently are numbers. Numbers are used just absolutely everywhere and are profoundly important to coding. Numbers can be used for just so many things. And of course, we can use it for calculations and math, which are very important. But let's start by thinking of them in more practical ways. 
For example, we can have pretty small, easy to count numbers. How many minutes are left until the system logs me out again? Uh, 30 minutes? Okay, yeah, good to know. Or we can do, you know, super tiny ones like uh, asking Google or Alexa or Siri, hey, how big is one millimeter measured in kilometers? Which, by the way, is 0.0000001. Or we can go the other way and do an enormous one. Like, how many milliseconds has it been since January 1st in the year 1300? Yeah, that's going to be a big number. No matter the case, if we want to do any kind of calculation or just manipulation of data or generally work with our data in any form of arithmetic or things like that, it needs to be in a number. We can't really do that with a string because strings' values are arbitrary. We can't necessarily multiply the word dog by cat and then divide it by fox. That just doesn't make sense. But numbers are absolute values. We can multiply 7 by 20 and then divide it by 2. That makes sense. In general, when we're coding, we do refer to any kind of number as quote-unquote number. However, we do have a number of different ways to represent them. For whole whole numbers, we tend to use int, which is short for integer. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4. For numbers with decimal points, so 4.6 or whatever, those are what we call floats or floating points. But we also have different kinds of ints and floats. We have int 8 and int 16, int 32, int 64, unsigned ints, big ints, and etc. And same goes for floats. We have float 32s, float 64s, and the like. The reason for the different kinds are because, well, sometimes we need to just represent small numbers. And other times we need to represent enormous ones, but we just like to have the ability to choose which one we're using. So big int, for example, is used for, well, unsurprisingly, storing and working with just absolutely unfathomably huge integers. Then we have our int 8 and int 16, 32, 64s, and they all have to do with just how much of that limit we need. So remember, if you go back to our binary bits and bytes episode again, a number which is 8 bits ends up letting us store 256 values. And if we move to 16 bits, that's not actually uh, double the values, it's exponential. And as we approach 64, that gets to be a pretty huge number. And again, big int, even bigger, it's huge. Um, If you notice me say unsigned earlier, what that means is that it will never have a sign at the front of it. It will never be positive 15 or negative 15. It will always just be 15, which means it's always positive. So that means that rather than allowing for half of our int range to be allocated to negative numbers, so like negative 1, 2, 3, 4, and then all the way up to positive 1, 2, 3, 4, and to our, our ranges, it's always just going to be positive, starting at zero and positive, unsigned. So anyways, yes. Numbers are extremely important. And again, again, going back to our binary episode, you might remember that we started with zeros and ones. Zero meaning off and one meaning on. And the next one of our primaries is, well, exactly that again, the Boolean. A Boolean value is either going to be true or false. And honestly, you're going to be using these 
all over your code. <laughs> they are just a huge part of conditional statements. If something is true, then perform some function. Else, if it isn't true, then do something else. Booleans are great, and while they themselves are fairly simple, they also lead us into a subject that we're going to be skipping over on this episode because it needs a bit more depth to explore. That is truthy and falsy values. And you'll encounter this one a lot in languages like JavaScript, but essentially it's being able to tell if something other than your purely defined booleans is either false or true. Is the number zero, is, is that true or is that false? Negative one, is that true or is that false? Is the string of, quote, true actually true or is it false? Is an undefined value true? You know, things of that nature. And maybe we will dive into truthy and falsy in a later episode, but that's a bit beyond the scope of today's overview. However, let's move on to our last primitive to talk about, which is also something to kind of bear in mind with truthiness and falsiness, and that is the value of null. Now, Null is an interesting thing because it quite literally represents nothing. The lack of something. <laughs> is there a value here? No, it is null. And for what it's worth, it's also called nil in some languages, but whatever. Null can sometimes feel a bit counterintuitive if you're just starting out, but if we are declaring a variable of some kind, and we put its type set to string, but we initialize it with the value of null, that's fine. That's basically like us saying, okay, we've, we've got this box, and in this box we can only ever store strings. Right now, it's empty, but hey, the box exists, and that means that when we eventually do get strings, we got somewhere we can put them. Null is our way of saying yes, we recognize that the box is there, it just doesn't have anything in it yet. But we're going to use it, we promise you. Or, if it did have stuff in it, and now it's totally empty, we can manually set it to null if we want, just to say, hey, nothing in the box. But there are just a bunch of ways and scenarios where null is applicable, but the long and the short of it is that null is nothing, and yeah, you're going to be using null all the time. Before we move on, a very important distinction to make, by the way, is that zero and null are not the same. False and null are also not the same. In the case of zero, zero is a very valid value. It could be zero degrees outside. It could be saying we have zero tacos in our hands right now and you know stuff like that. That is different from us saying null because, again, null is the empty box. Zero is a defined value. That is a number which we can recognize. False is also a defined value. It's a Boolean, right? It's, it's something, but null is nothing. Now, there are ways we can get around that. We can do things like null coalescing and nullish coalescing, but yeah, I just wanted to make that strong point that null is its own distinct value, which is very valid. And you can expect to work with it lots and, you know, work around it lots if you need to. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our collection of primitives for today. Now, again, this is all purely serving as an overview. There's tons and tons and tons more detail that we could get into 
for each and every one of these, you know, like mentioned with Truthy and Nullish and the minutia of Big Int versus Unsigned Int 64 and things of that nature. And if there is a demand, we can certainly go back and explore these topics with as much or as little detail as folks might want. But for now, let's continue on to some of the ways we actually store and work with these primitives. This is getting us into an introduction to data structures, or data structures, depends how you want to pronounce it. So what are data data structures? Well, as I mentioned, they are how we store and work with our primitives. Remember how I mentioned that a variable can be defined with some type, but set that value to null and it's like an empty box? Well, let's keep that empty box in mind because these data structures are how we store these boxes. It's how we stack them up, it's how we order them, it's how we know which box to open first and which box to open last, and you know how to organize tons of boxes together and relate them to one another and you know that kind of thing. These are ways to structure our data. Data structures. Now, you could consider variables themselves to be a data structure, and but I'm just going to move past that one and instead move us to what are defined as more traditional data structures for which you'll be using to apply algorithms. Uh, data structures and algorithms often go together because the purpose of us writing algorithms is to have collections of logic to manipulate data. We will have some kind of input and we will want to have some other kind of output. Maybe we have a giant list of things and we want them sorted from the biggest to smallest amount of tacos in hand, or, you know, we'll eventually get into algorithms and how to solve complex problems. But for now, let's just talk about the most common data structures that you'll run into and some of the ways you might use them. First, and probably most common that you'll run into with your day-to-day -day coding life are arrays. Now let's continue with our box analogy. Arrays are basically taking our variables, which are small boxes, and we're putting each of them into a bigger box, an array. The first box that we put in is in the first position, which we'll call the first index. And then the second box goes into the second position, the third is in the third, etc. And the order that we put them in is the order that they'll be in whenever we look into that box again, to the array. We can add to the array, we can delete from it, we can sort it, and there's a whole whack of stuff that we can generally do with them. But the short of it is that we are able to put multiple items into an array so that we can get them out later, however we need to do so. Depending on your language, there's a few different ways we can define an array. We have what's called a static array, which means we are giving it a defined size. So maybe the size will be five, and then it can hold five items. But after that, it can't hold anymore. We, we can't make that big box any bigger, so it can only hold five items, and that's it. If you want to hold more, you're either going to need to get a bigger box or a second one. <laughs> um, one of the main advantages of a static array is that they are extremely memory efficient. We always know that this array starts at some memory address and then ends at some other one contiguously. And it's pretty easy to figure out, and it's great that way. But there is also a fairly common second type of array, 
which we call a dynamic array. Now, a dynamic array will always contain as many things as you put into it. So yeah, you might have those five things and then say, oh no, I forgot about this other one I need to put in there, and you add it to the array. No problemo. Now your array has six items and you're good to go. And you can keep doing that forever to a hundred items, a billion items, you know? It's fine. That box, that array is malleable. But funny thing is, and here's a little secret to most dynamic arrays in most languages, is that, okay, starting, let's go back to our five item one and we're adding the sixth. Our act of adding the sixth is in reality just copying the old array, defining a new one that has an additional slot, and then just moving everything into the new one as well as your new item. And then, you know, we're just kind of pretending that you were adding to the original all along. So keep a secret. It's not actually growing. Uh, But again, different languages handle it a bit differently. But in general, dynamic arrays are generally not as memory efficient as static arrays because it has to do that copying operation. And, you know, we can never say how much memory exactly is going to take up because it'll move around. But yeah, there's ways around it. Also, there are different kind of arrays beyond just static and dynamic. We usually work with what you would consider linear arrays. Remember, we have that first item, then the second, and third, and so on. That is what we call a one-dimensional array. But we can have multi-dimensional arrays. Two-dimensional arrays are pretty common, actually, too. You can think of them as arrays within arrays. So we start with our big box, the array, and then we have our smaller boxes inside of that. Now, we're used to those small boxes holding strings or numbers or whatever, but they can actually each hold their own arrays. So that might mean that the item in our first position is actually its own array full of its own smaller boxes. (laughs) And, you know, those two, those could contain more arrays too. So, you know, it can get pretty complicated pretty fast, but... It's worth knowing that multi-dimensional arrays do exist, and there's actually a lot of use cases for them. An example of when you might want to use a multi-dimensional array is, let's say you're a teacher. Uh, Let's say you have 10 students, and they each write two tests. You can have a big array for your class, which has 10 strings, which are the name of your students. So you have 10 students, 10 strings. There we go. They are each in that big array. Then you would be able to look at the third student and within their array, you can check out the results of their second test. Or, you know, the seventh student and check out the results of their first, things like that. Multi-dimensional arrays are great and you will kind of use them a lot because uh, they're just so practical. And once you're used to them and you can visualize how they work, they end up being pretty easy to understand. So if it's not making sense now, don't worry. Once you use them a bit, it'll be fine. Two last things about arrays, though. First, in most languages, but not all, looking at you, JavaScript, uh, (laughs) arrays usually only contain one type of information. If you define an array that holds strings, it will only ever hold strings. If you define one which holds float 32s, it will only ever hold float 32s. This is for our safety, basically. And to make sure that you're not going to get funky, unexpected values in some random position which screws up whatever operation you want to do with it. Um, Yeah, so just bear in mind that in most languages, it's only one type. JavaScript is weird. 
The second thing <laughs> is that most arrays in most languages start counting at zero. So the first position in your array will often be called position zero. And if you're wondering why, well, mainly it's just kind of because of convention. But more explicitly, when C really became the prominent language at the time, it used zero-based arrays because it was thought of that if you're specifying the item you want, you're counting however many steps it takes you to get to it. So your first item is at the first position, which is zero because you have to go zero steps to get it. The second item is at the second position. You have to take one step to get it. And, you know, so on and so forth. So zero, one, two, three, etc. So it starts at zero. Basically, it was a memory optimization choice back in the day, and we're still using it today. All right, so that's arrays. That is our first data structure down. High fives. Let's move on to our next one. And that is going to be two of them, actually. That is stacks and queues. Now, stacks and queues are being grouped together because they work really similarly, though technically they're kind of opposites, but we'll get there. The reason we're talking about them now is because they're kind of based on arrays. You can consider them a derivative of arrays even, actually. They are exclusively one-dimensional arrays. But the thing that makes them different from our standard arrays is how we use and access the data they store. So with arrays, we could specify which index position we wanted to access, right? If we wanted the seventh item, we grab it at the sixth index. If we want the 50th, same type deal. Now, stacks do not work that way. A stack is, well, it's kind of exactly what you think of when you hear the word stack. It's like a stack of pancakes, or a stack of books, or a stack of plates. Generally, you can't grab any of those from the bottom without knocking the whole stack over. So you start at the top. You put an arbitrary amount of items into the stack, and then we just grab whatever the one is at the top. This is known as a last-in, first-out system. The last thing that we put in there is the first thing we take out. Now, there are a ton of places that stacks get used, and one of the most common that you might consider is the call stack. You've probably heard that term used before. And the call stack is quite complicated and very helpful. Um, if you have ever run a program and had an error, you'll usually see what we call a stack trace. We are able to check out the last handful of lines that ran through the stack, which is all the uh, functions and things that we're calling through the time, and then we can see what was in them. Stacks also tend to be used for, let's say, like an undo function. So if you typed a word and then hit Control-Z and Control-Z and Control-Z and Control-Z and going back and back and back, it's navigating through a stack to get you back to where you were before. Now, I mentioned that stacks and queues are related but opposite, and that's really true. They are both linear, and we also put a bunch of stuff into both of them, but instead of grabbing the most recent thing we put in, with queues, the first thing we grab is the oldest one. It is first in, first out. The first item that we put in is the first item that comes out. And a very obvious real-world analog would be, well, well, uh, a queue. <laughs> if you stand in a line, then 
the person who is at the front is the next to be served or to collect the taco for their hand or whatever. Um, and then everything else shifts forward and on and on we continue until the queue is empty. Now, queues are really useful in practice, but honestly, we barely ever think about them. But one of the ways I use queues most frequently is when working with buffers or streams. We load up our buffer with data, you know, byte data or whatever it happens to be, and then we push it through to whatever is receiving it, whatever is listening. And we're constantly adding on to the back of it as we write to our stream. And then the reader is constantly pulling from the front of it to read our stream until it's over. So those are our first three data structures, arrays, stacks, and queues. Let's carry on. Next is linked lists. Now, they are interesting because upon first glance, you would also kind of assume that they're similar to arrays, but this is actually where we start to distance ourselves from arrays. Linked lists are also linear in nature, like similar to arrays and stacks and queues. We start at the start of some list and we work our way down it. The way that it's different though is that it is not all stored in contiguous memory, like an array or a stack or a queue. The items of a linked list can be stored, well, frankly, randomly if needed. It's the kind of thing where we can start with 10 items and then a day later add another, and then a week later add you know, another 20, and we don't need to reallocate any memory. Or you know, do that trick I mentioned with copying the entirety of an array over in the adding slot. We don't, we don't need to do that. The way that a linked list works is that we always have what we call a head. That is our window into the linked list. We can look at what is at the head at that exact moment. You can think of it kind of like the needle of a record player, or if that's too old for you, then whatever our current time marker is when you're listening to a song or this podcast. We can look at the data that's stored in the head and then Along with the data, we can also see where to find the next item. It is usually structured in a way to where we see a list of key value pairs, meaning we have a key that describes its contents, so name, and then we have a value, coding fix. The key occupation, the name, podcast. The key of whatever, the value of whatever. One of these key value pairs will always be called next, and it will contain a memory address. That is telling us that when we're ready to look at the next item in our list, we know exactly where to look. And we continue down the list until we go and go and go until we reach an item where the next value is simply null. We have no new item, we don't have anything next, so we've reached the end of the list. And that's the basic of a linked list, honestly. And more specifically, that's the basics of a singly linked list. We also have doubly linked lists. They're basically the same thing, but in addition to having a next key value pair, we will also have a previous key value pair, which allows us to go backwards. So now we can go backwards and forwards. But in the end, they're essentially the same. If we were to be in the list, and then we keep going to the previous value, and previous, and previous, and previous, eventually, we will encounter null again. And that's how we know we're at the start of the list. So, 
In practice, when you're writing code at work, length lists are not super common, but they are way, way, way more memory efficient than an array if what you want is something sequential and predictable. But if you ever want to do any kind of searching or sorting, eh, linked lists aren't the greatest option because there will always be a linear operation no matter what you do, and you're always going to have to read it from start to finish. They're still very useful. And honestly, if you were ever preparing for a coding interview, which that's a topic we'll talk about in a future episode, but I look forward to that. Anyways, if you were ever getting ready for a coding interview, make sure to practice with linked lists because they matter and coding interviews like to quiz you on them. Okay, so next in our list of linked items, which are data structures, that, that joke didn't work. Anyways, this is where we're going to start to get into data structures and data structures and data structures, whatever. And these are the ones that are a bit hard to talk about on a podcast because these are the ones that start to behave complexly and would be much easier to explain if I could draw it out for you, but I'll do my best to paint a word picture. So next we have trees. Trees are very, 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 very common if you ever want to do any kind of work with AI. If you're interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence, the first thing I'm going to say before all else is that you should learn trees like the back of your hand. <laughs> and there are so many types of trees that you should learn. There's binary trees and binary search trees and balance trees and entry trees and red black trees and two three trees and just so many more they're an excellent way to learn and practice how to do things like depth first searches and breadth first searches and i'm not going to go about defining any of the terms i just said because again this is an overview and we can easily spend an hour or two just talking about trees but Let's not do that so we don't tack on another, you know, four hours to this episode. <laughs> Instead, I'll give you the thousand foot overview of the thousand and one foot overview. You can think of trees similarly to, well, real trees, but kind of turned upside down. Or family trees, where at the very top you have, you know, someone. Let's say great grandma. Now, great-grandma has a certain amount of children, and then those children also have a certain amount of children, and then those children of those children also have their children, or, you know, maybe they don't. But we care about looking at each part of that hierarchy and then being able to see the relations between them, being able to see the siblings, being able to see the children and the parents. Now, we can see that on the very top, we have great-grandma, and then if we go down the right side, we have our grandma, and then our mom, and hey, it's you. Awesome. Or we can look at the tree again. At the top, we see great-grandma, and then we go left, and we see, oh, that's, uh, that's grandma's sister, so we'll just call her our aunt, and then that gets down to your cousin, and then, hey, it's your niece. That's kind of the very basic thousand, two billion foot view of a tree. And again, it would be so much easier to show you this than to say it with words, but hopefully that little basic description makes enough sense that you can visualize it at least. And frankly, I'm going to leave trees here because diving much deeper would require that four-hour episode, but they're very useful with AI. I cannot 
I cannot say it enough. If you're doing AI, learn trees, learn breadth first searching, and learn depth first searching. Being able to properly navigate a tree and find the things that we're searching for means that we have an extremely efficient system that can help us do, well, almost anything. So yeah, trees are very important. And also related to trees, but not exactly the same, is what we call tries. And that's spelled T-R-I-E-S, so not trees, tries. And again, going to be pretty brief with this, but they're essentially ways for us to break down strings, so words or sentences or whatever, break them down in different ways. We can start with a prefix, and then we can see all the different permutations that we can generate if we were to add letters. And that is very useful for things like autocomplete in searches. Uh, but if you're interested in a practical application beyond the fact that they're used for autocomplete, um, I recommend doing some research and reading on what's called Elasticsearch, which is a common search tool and library which uses tries and things like n-grams to give you access to just really complex logic without having to build it yourself. But yeah, Elasticsearch, it's great. And it'll be a nice introduction to things like tries. And next, and hey, we're nearing the end. This is our second to last data structure. And that is going to be graphs. Graphs are profoundly cool and also extremely complex. <laughs> graphs essentially work with what we call nodes and edges. A node is some thing. It can be anything. It could be an airport. It could be a book. It could be a taco. But for the sake of an example, let's say airports. Now, I'm Canadian, so let's pick some Canadian airports. Let's say Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, and Halifax. Those are four nodes, four things, four airports. Now, from Vancouver, I can fly to Calgary, Toronto, and Halifax. I can fly to each of them. And each of those connections can be drawn with a line. We call that line an edge. So our nodes, our things, are connected by edges, which are lines. And these lines can either go one way or two ways, and which we actually call undirected or directed graphs. But to continue our example, so from Vancouver, I can fly everywhere. Now, from Halifax, we can only fly to Toronto. So that means that all of those edges from Vancouver are one way only, at least when we go to Halifax, because Halifax does not fly back to Vancouver. Now, Toronto flies to Vancouver, Calgary, and Halifax. It flies everywhere too. So our connection with Halifax and Toronto actually goes both ways. And we could continue finding all these relations for all of the airports and figure out which ones fly to where, but let's not stretch our imaginations too far. <laughs> um, using a graph, we could figure out the most efficient way to get from one city to another if they aren't directly connected. Like, how would we get from Halifax to Vancouver? Well, we'd probably fly from Halifax to Toronto, and then, hey, Toronto's connected to Vancouver, so there we go. Halifax to Toronto to Vancouver. Hey, thanks, graphs. But... Or, or, what if we added a fifth node and we wanted to fly to Iqaluit and it only connects to Calgary? Well, dang, 
we would have to fly from Halifax to Toronto. And then does Toronto fly to Calgary? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It does. So, oh wait, no, no, it doesn't. Oh crap. So that means we have to go from Halifax to Toronto to Vancouver. Vancouver flies to, to Calgary. Okay. So Halifax to Toronto to Vancouver to Calgary. Calgary goes to a Calouet and that's our way. We have traversed the graph. We found our path. Now, this is a very simple example, but you can probably already see that graphs can get very complicated really fast, but are also just beyond useful. They're so, so useful. Um, if you can set up a graph and understand it and navigate it, you are in an excellent place because they are also very important to AI, but also to just real world practical things like maps. So think of like Google Maps or whatever, getting directions from your home to whatever, the grocery store, the next town over, for example. Though Google doesn't directly tell us what they use under the hoods, we can assume that this uses graphs to figure out that shortest path to wherever you need to go. When it comes to writing the code to actually navigate these graphs, uh, we can also employ the thing I talked about with trees, which is breadth-first search and depth-first search. So again, Look those up if this is at all interesting to you. Uh, or let me know in an email that you want to hear more about them. But anyways, graphs also give us access to what we call an adjacency list and an adjacency matrix. Now, you can probably figure out what that means just from the fact that they're called adjacency. But yes, there are ways to tell which nodes are next to or connected to other nodes and you know which ones are close to each other. But very useful, very cool. I love graphs. All my homies love graphs. They're wonderful. But with all of that, this brings us to our last data structure. And it is less complicated than the last two, but you're still going to be using it a ton. That is hash tables. Now, remember when we talked about key value pairs earlier? And hey, also remember that we talked about arrays? Well, this is one of our ways of kind of combining the two. Now, uh, a traditional hash table involves hashing a value to find our index. Um, if you are not familiar with the concept of hashing, it basically boils down to us running through some value into an algorithm, which generates what looks like a random value afterwards. But it's consistent, that's the thing. Like, if I put the value in of cat, C-A-T, it might return to me, 7c uppercase l o 2 exclamation mark p which you know that looks random but if i were to run it again i'll get 7c uppercase l o 2 exclamation mark p and if i did it again same value and so on and so forth forever hashes are very very useful things and like they're used for things like passwords so the way that passwords actually work in a website is that Good websites don't store your passwords in a database. Instead, they run what you type into the password field uh, through a hashing algorithm, and then it compares that to the hashed value that we have in a database. If they match, then the password is correct, but if they don't, then the password is wrong. Anyways, all of this is to say that hash tables do traditionally use hashing, but I'm wanting to step over the kind of practical way that's implemented. And instead, we're just going to look at the way we can use it. So that is what we're going to call a dictionary. Now, this is already pretty easy for us to visualize because pretty much everyone has used a dictionary at some point in their lives. 
if we're looking for a word and you know we find it and then we look at its definition. In a dictionary hash table, we're going to be looking for a key and then we're going to be getting its value. We can add a new key with a new value and we can grow our dictionary as large as the array which contains us lets. Well, you know, it lets us do, you know, whatever. It's fine. Or if it's a dynamic array, then, you know, it can kind of go on forever, basically. And the nice thing about hash tables is that they are much easier to search than arrays and especially more so than linked lists because we're not looking for the index number, we're looking for the key. <laughs> and if that key exists, then we simply look at its value. If it doesn't, then we know it isn't in there and we don't have to iterate over the entire thing. Very useful. And depending on the language you're programming in, you can even allow some keys that have no values. You know, The value can be null and that's fine. But we also have access to what we call hash sets. So a set means that it can only contain unique keys and sometimes values. Depends on the ones you're working with. But uh, if there's ever a duplicate, then there's going to be some kind of rules in place to ensure that you only have one of them. And it's just a bunch of unique stuff, whereas a hash table can allow duplicates. You can think of that kind of like a phone book. You can have multiple people with the last name Smith, but if it's for usernames, those need to be unique. You can't have two people with the exact same username. So that's kind of the difference between a hash table and a set. But we also have what's called hash maps. And in short, they're basically a subset of hash tables. You can have a hash table that doesn't have just it does not have those bunches of unique keys and values. It's just a phone book. But if it does have a bunch of unique keys and values, then we can call that a hash map. And hey, whew, all right, friends, we have made it. This has been our episode to give an overview and just kind of summary to a bunch of primitives and data structures that you will be running into on your coding journey. Again, this was pretty quick. It was just an overview. I'm going to keep saying the word overview, and it's going to stop meaning anything with the overview. <laughs> but this is purely meant as an introduction. And if you're interested in any of this, there's a ton of re useful resources that you can look up. Uh, if you're interested in hearing about any more of them in detail, then please uh, send me a message over at coding at fix.space, fix spelled F-Y-X, or send me a message on Twitter over at Fix Podcasts. I always appreciate feedback, no matter if it's positive or negative. I love improving, and I want to try and bring you a show that works best for you. If you do enjoy the show, please leave a review over on your review platform of choice, be it, you know, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Stitcher Audible, you know, wherever you like to re leave reviews. They really help, and they help us grow the show with, you know, that more people can hear it, and we appreciate it. No matter the case, hey, thank you again for listening. It is super appreciated, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>